Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 102. It's time to delve deeply into the other Ndebele. Then what happened to Mzilikazi, who arrived in the area known as the Transvaal, that is, across the Vaal, with his hungry wolves. The development of the Haarfeld to the late 1820s is quite a tale, with the first Swana people making their way here by the 1100s, although much of the high ground was avoided at first. By the late 1600s, people had moved onto hilltop defensive locations through the region. Roy Kranz, for example, is a stone-walled Sutu Tswana or Pedi site on the Weiterbach Plateau northwest of the Witwatersrand. There was also a similar development at Brumer on the Linksfield Ridge, right in the heart of Johannesburg. I used to walk up that slope from the back of my house, and the original stone settlements had been frittered away by the Boer and British defenders during the Anglo-Boer War, who used the 500-year-old Tswana stone to build sangars and trenches. So over hundreds of years, the original peoples of the Haarfeld moved around a great deal, sometimes living on hilltops, sometimes in the valleys, depending on how politically stable it all was. Oral tradition points out the Huruchi founded the hilltop village of Chuenyani, also called Vitkopis, which is near Zirast, and that was by the early 1500s. By the 17th century, there was significant Tswana growth in the west, where it's warmer than around Johannesburg, with the rise of the Quena and the Khatla dynasties, but these were shattered in the 18th century as trading power shifted. If you followed the series to this point, you'll remember the descriptions of the trading routes from Delagoa Bay and how they crisscrossed central southern Africa. There were even traders who arrived here from the west coast, modern-day Angola. By the end of the 17th century, the Transvaal and Debele began to emerge, and by the 18th century, they were regarded as a separate people by the Sutu, Tswana and Pedi speakers. They became known as the Matabele, and they lived on the steepest hills where they built fortifications around the Waterbach Plateau. The southern Transvaal and Debele were spread over the Witwatersrand Haarfeld adjoining the Drakensberg, up to where Pretoria is today, and they were in this region by the end of the 17th century, in other words, the 1600s. They all trace their history to a man known as Busi, and the dating is around 1630 to 1670. Busi's son was called Tswani, and that's why we know Pretoria today as Tswani, because that was really its first name. Oral stories are a bit more murky when it comes to the northern Transvaal in Debele, who settled west of the Waterberg Plateau in the 1500s. They are called the Khwaduba clan, and also trace themselves to Busi. Then there's another group living on the Waterberg Plateau, who called themselves the Laka, who were originally of the Langa people of Zululand. It's very important to think of the Haarfeld, the northwest Limpopo region of today, Pumalanga, and the Free State towards the northern Zululand highlands, as a region of constant change through hundreds of years. Just by the way, the original word Motabele comes from a Tswana prince who lived in the mid-1500s. More about him in a moment. According to the Sutu, Tswana and Pedi, the word Matabele predates the Nguni word Indibele, and the Ngunis actually stole this word from the Tswana. So how did this all work out, and what is Mzilikatsi's role? I'll come back to this thorny issue in a moment. 
Because of the complexity of the story, often it disappears from school textbooks because it confounds both modern African nationalist historians and previous apartheid-era historians. History is so important to the ruling hegemony, they say. So during apartheid, the idea was to reinforce the myth that blacks were always moving south slowly and whites moving north. And then they met in an empty region called the Transvaal. Then gold was found and everyone wanted to live there. And that's the narrative. This place had never been empty through the age of human evolution. Even the sand roamed around this part of the world thousands of years before. And before that, more than 100,000 years ago, people were napping obsidian flakes around places like Tsuaing Crater, lopping off glassy rocks formed during a meteorite strike 250,000 years ago. Tsuaing Crater is 40 kilometers north of Pretoria. Humans worked this obsidian treasure at the crater, and these people were part of the first modern humans. Anyone who lives in Gauteng province today and hasn't visited Tsuaing Crater yet should really make a plan to do so. It's one of the best formed meteorite craters, more than a kilometre in circumference and 400 feet deep near Hammanskral. Tsuaing means salt. It used to be known as Sotpan Crater. While we're talking about the origin of words, the big question is where does this word matabeli come from? Some said purely means raiders, Others, that it's derived from the word mortebella, which means to hit or knock around with a fist. But the most likely story is this. Huruchi, oral tradition, speaks of mortebeli, deposed by his brother Mortebeyani at the beginning of the 16th century. That's the Tswana prince I mentioned a moment ago. Mortebeli fled southeast from the western Transvaal to the Vaal River. He hired mercenaries from far in the east, the warlike and goony people of that time, which predate the Ndwandwe and Mtetwa, but are linked. Then blazed the trail of his own back beyond the Vatebach Plateau and founded a new line of people. They were called the Gananwa, who are now the Pedi and Venda peoples. The royal line of the Gananwa are the Maleti clan, who think of themselves as senior relatives of the Gananwa chiefs. The Maleti then intermarried and spread across the central Transvaal Bushveld Basin towards the middle Limpopo Valley through the next two centuries, to the late 1700s, in other words. Others headed further west across the Limpopo to the Tuapong Hills in eastern Botswana. While they were migrating northwest, the other Transvaal Indibeli, called the Laka, aka the Langa, and the Khwaduba, remained behind in the Waterbach Plateau. These people clung to their linguistic identity. They spoke an Nguni language, whereas the others to the west became Tswana, the Sutu and Pedi speakers. One man by the name of Mokhali refused to dilute his language, and it is his name that morphed into the Mokhalisberg. That wonderful and imposing steep and craggy range of mountains west of Johannesburg and Pretoria. The very phrase sounds Afrikaans, Mokhalis, but it is actually an early Indibeli word from the 1500s. And so it happens by the time of our story now, the 1820s, that the Sutu, the Tswana and Pedi people used the word Matabeli to identify anyone who was a mercenary or brigand and anyone who was Nguni speaking. The Transvaal Indibeli are even more interesting for another reason. They were skilled metal workers and miners. If you remember episode 1 and 2, I spoke about the geology of South Africa. It's no surprise then that the Indibeli were ardent suppliers and buyers of weapons of war, iron weapons that were smelted right there on the Haarfeld. Iron, copper, tin, they were mined and melted down, mixed up, exported, turned into implements and weapons. 
The Weiterbach Plateau was also directly connected to the East Coast trade for hundreds of years before the 19th century and remains an important point through which goods flow today. The N4 highway from Maputo through Pretoria to Gaparon, then on to Zambia, is a 21st century version of this ancient trading route. So the Laka Ndebele were excellent smelters of tin and copper and iron and manufactured ornaments of fine quality. They were sought after. These incredible people also spun cotton, made carosses of animal skins that were bought and sold, and controlled the tobacco and ivory trade towards the sea. By the 1820s, they were reportedly so rich in cattle, stories abounded of a chief younger than 30 who already possessed 48 wives. The Laka also had another interesting distinction. Their language has clicks, including click consonants, just like the Zulu, but unlike the Tswana. So they stood out. These people have left a vast array of ruins around the Haarfeld. These are the stone settlements that people of the 21st century are just beginning to explore. Missionary Robert Moffat arrived at the tail end of these settlements as established zones way back, writing of the seven-feet-high rock walls as he travelled around the fringes of the Machalisberg Hills in 1829 and 1830. Their full history is full of mystery. While this sexy history has been about the Zulu, the Ndebele diaspora is actually far more historically important. Some of these people ended up migrating to western Zimbabwe long before Mzilikazi and established the Rosvi Empire in the 1680s. This kingdom lasted until the 1860s, and just out of interest, the term Rosvi refers to their legacy as a warrior nation, taken from the Shona term Krozva to plunder. It's also this story that has confused some of these people with the effect of the Dipakani, the Infatkani, the great dislocation of people we've heard about. And that's because Mzilikatsi, who left Zululand with his Kumaro people, ended up co-opting the Indibeli identity in a kind of 19th century cultural appropriation process. By Mzilikatsi's time in the mid-1820s, there was significant jostling for territory and ascendancy around inland southern Africa. A series of small wars amongst the Tswana has become known as the Ivory Cattle and Fur Wars and also the Wives Wars, and these were on the go around this time. The Huruchi state in the western Haarfeld had lost power by the start of the 1800s. The Tswana had seized their cattle and pushed them out of the best grazing and agricultural land. By now, the Tlaping state had also taken over from the Rolong in the southeastern Kalahari, and in turn, these had been overcome by the Kora and the Urlambastas, the mixed-race folks from the Cape running from the colonists. The Khatlapedi state had also risen to power on the Leidenbach Plateau, so by the late 1700s and early 1800s, they controlled the trading through Rustenburg to just south of the Vaal River. Meanwhile, in the northern Transvaal, the Khatla and Tsonga challenged the Venda and the Lobedu people around the Sotpansbach Plateau, while the Tsonga, further southeast, had pushed the Pedi northeast into Mozambique Flats beyond the Limpopo River. This battle for territory was constant. The Nkwaketsi state dominated southeastern Botswana, attacking the Huruchi and the Tlaping. Then the Ka and the Huruchi fought over the Shoshong Hills into western Zambia. The Kwena, Nkwato and Tawana quarreled with each other and migrated their quarrels further northwest and ended up where they are today, the Okavango Delta. The Difakang or the Infatkani was a real event. 
It was a violent and destabilized region, this southern Africa of the middle to late 1820s. Warriors were all over the felt. Murder and pillage was the order of the day. By now, there were two characteristics of the Tswana. One was that they built really big capital towns. Some had populations of 10 to 20,000 people. And the second, they were ethnically inclusive. If you trot off to Parais on the Vaal River today, you'll find some of these smaller settlements dating back to the 1700s, which are characterized by archaeological finds indicating many foreigners had been incorporated into the local culture. Pottery is mixed. Cultural items like beads and bangles are mixed. Even grinding stones are mixed. As the Dipakani broke out, these large states began to fight more violently amongst each other. Some historians call this growth of violence a human response to increased conflict over resources. Whether the Gauls, the Germanic tribes, the Celts, Egyptians, the kingdoms of Cambodia, the Aztecs, even the British Empire, all of these saw an increase in the level of violence once the states reached a certain size and then these empires needed more and more food and water and treasure. Another cause of the tensions in southern Africa was trade. For example, the Shoshone and Tswapong Hills are strategic. Anyone controlling this territory controls trade in ivory and furs from the Kalahari en route to the ports of the Indian Ocean via the Limpopo Valley. By 1828, the Nkwato chiefdom under Khari had developed a new form of vassal state known as the Khamelo system. The proto-Botswana concept was used by the Khabokwene of the southeastern Botswana region in the 1820s and adopted by the Tawana state in northwest of Botswana later in the 1830s. These Iron Age sites of the Transvaal, as they're known, show widespread distribution of extremely heavy birdbath-style grindstones. These were only used to grind maize, not the other grains found in southern Africa. Remember, maize or mealies only came along in this region in the late 1700s or early 1800s. They are thought to have spread from Inhambani and Delicoa Bay, brought by Portuguese and other traders to the east of Transvaal and then Zululand. But the route that maize took in southern Africa was patchy. For example, it was still unknown in the Shoshong Hills of eastern Botswana as late as 1840. Something else happened just before Mzilikazi blew into this region. A new way of tilling the fields began. The production of grain crops is intensified for political reasons and the size of a king's grain basket was an essential public indicator of his prestige as a ruler. We have quite an interesting agriculture technology that now developed. We've discovered that a combination of six women hoeing a field in a line cultivated the same area in three days that one woman would have cultivated in her own field over an entire year. This was a form of commercial farming, not in the modern sense, but organized agricultural labor-infused action, where the women were expected to work a limited area in a stipulated time. This was called six Sikhwana acres, or 0.4 hectares. Quena chiefs would summon women aged sets to work various parts of land, a kind of cultural forced labor practice. They were working tribute fields for the king, and homesteads began recruiting contract workers from nearby to be paid in food or goods. The women were exploited as plows, while young men were regarded as expendable. They could only hunt and fight. They were not as valuable as these women. Marriage became what some call the detonator of conflict here, as the rules of dynastic succession were disputed. 
chiefs collected more cattle and grain, and therefore more wives. Disputes over bride wealth accelerated into the 1820s. These were known as the Lobolo or Bukhari Wars. Further east, towards where the Kruger National Park is today, pastures had been opened up as the thick forests were chopped down. And there's an amazing history here. For example, starting at least 500 AD, early Iron Age people opened up pasture grasslands in the Kruger by removing trees and created pasture grassland and former tsetse fly belts. But the bushveld grew back as these people moved away from around 1000 AD. Then the people developed pastures in the Kruger again between 1500 AD and 1880. These pastures became overrun once more by bush and tsetse fly between 1800 and 1900. And that was when the terrible Rindapest scourge killed off most animals in the Kruger area and simultaneously killed off the tsetse fly. Before people moved back into where the Kruger Park is today, it was declared a protected region by Transvaal President Paul Kruger in 1898. Now it's time to meet up with an old friend who we've heard about a great deal in this series by the name of Kunrad the Base. If you remember, we last covered this giant Trekpur's exploits as he lived amongst the Amakosa in the late 1700s and early 1800s. But by 1818, he'd made his way to the Haafveld. Base first joined the Nkwaketsi and Huruchi people and had become a senior chief of mixed-race South Africans north of the Vaal River. Since his days with the Amatkoza, he travelled to the Orange River, then further north, living among the Tlaping and Rolong. The base first offered them his services and firearms and was involved in the rising violence by supporting the Huruchi in the attack on the Maleti of the Machalisberg. And to this day... He has a series of praise names which are recited by the Huruchi. These names for the base include Moro, his traditional morning greeting he used amongst the Amakosa, although that word now means coffee in the Tswana language. The base's Machalisberg enemies called him Debafa, signifying the feathers in his hat. The Birwa people called him Sekhobokhobo, which means bad, bad luck in Tswana. Kunrad de Base was joined on the Highfelt by an escaped Cape slave called Joseph Arendt. They ended up attempting to take control of the trade in gunpowder with the Portuguese by 1818, but their way was blocked by the hostile Petty Kingdom. In 1820, Base moved along the northeastern trade route down the Limpopo Valley as far as the Tswapong Hills, where he and his sons finally settled amongst the Birwa people. A missionary called John Campbell was travelling about in this region about this time and heard about the base, but the burly Trekpur avoided the missionary because he was still a wanted man back in the Cape. The Nkwato people have quite a bit of oral history about Kunrad de Base, saying he was the first Mohibidu, or the red person, who arrived. They called him Mokhoa. That's no surprise because Mokhoa is one of the most commonly held surnames in Botswana. Nkwato traditions say that Kunrad de Base eventually died in the mid-1820s of fever while in the Tswapong Hills. He left behind an infant Birwa son called Mekhali, who was initiated into the Nkwato state around 1834. Kunrad de Base's older sons, Kadise Toro and Toronyani, popped up in Birwa oral tradition after a few years of living in the Blowback Hills. These kids of Kunrad's were also called Red People, they were hired as mercenaries for Tsonga and Portuguese slave and ivory traders and were really the first foot trekkers here. 
It is interesting that these offspring of Kunrad the base would be followed by Trichard van Rensburg and the Portita groups of Boers who were going to arrive from the Cape Colony soon as something known as the Great Trek. So by the mid-1820s there was raiding and fighting across a wide swathe, starting from further south along the Orange River in a band across the north of the Vaal and on to the Limpopo. The western Rolong had been pushed to the south. The Fokeng had attacked them through the mid-1820s. And by 1826, the Rolong were an impoverished people living near Taung. The Fokeng and the Rolong fought a succession of battles. And by 1827, the area around Kuruman had been destabilized by all these outsiders moving in, including Mzilikatsi of the Kamala further north. He had incorporated defeated communities as he went. And by 1828, 1829, he organized his domains into four belts of territory. In the center was Mzilikatsi and his main regiments, his domestic servants, his councillors. The second tier was made up of pastoral districts that were his client chieftains, local communities he'd defeated or who had accepted Indibeli overlordship. The third tier was semi-autonomous, and they allowed Indibeli messengers to pass through their towns and were supervised in their political relationships by the Indibeli. Beyond the third belt was a wide area that the Indibeli cleared of all people. The fourth belt, this was regarded as a march, a place his regiments would use to move through to attack others further afield, but also a buffer zone against aggressors. He'd raised the entire zone around the Malopo River by the late 1820s. Only wild animals could be found in this empty territory. Mzilikazi had organized large areas of the central Haarfeld around his core state but left communities like the Rolong under Tawani and another leader called Sifunela unmolested. That would change when Mzilikatsi decided to up and move his core territory. Ironically, the period of the Indibeli rule over the central Haarfeld actually also coincided with the period of harmony for the Rolong, at least initially. After decades of interfighting and clan violence and smaller groups jostling for power, Mzilikatsi stabilized matters as the single big power to be feared. But when he moved his capital from the eastern Haarfeld to the headwaters of the Crocodile River to the west in 1826, Mzilikazi forced out the Fokeng and the Taung, and these people fled towards the mission stations on the Orange River in the south. Then the Beli began to attack the Ingwaketsi in 1828 and drove this community into exile. Then Mzilikazi attacked them again in 1830, killing many and plundering their cattle. Survivors had to flee into the harsh land of the Kalahari Desert. The Huruchi, living closer to the Machalisberg, found themselves suddenly less secure. Then Dibele began snatching Huruchi youths and women and attaching them as slaves to Indibeli notables. Huruchi chief Machatla was forced to pay a large part of his crops to Mzilikazi as a tribute and was then told to use his people to sow crops closer to the Indibeli capital, no longer at his own home. Eventually, the Rolong's safety shattered when Indibeli warriors pitched up and attacked the herds of Molatsani, their chief, who had settled along the Val River. The Kora people along the Orange were growing tired of this threat to their north, this Indibeli king who was throwing his weight around. From 1829, they began to consider joining a military confederacy under that man you should remember well called Jan Blum. Also plotting with Blum was a man called Hype, a Kora leader who'd soon undertake a raid to the Indibeli. He was a friend of Molotsani 
and wanted to teach Mzilikatsi a lesson. That raid didn't end well. Fifty Kora were killed by the Indibeli, but Gwikla, Captain Baron Barnes, was watching all of this and was far better organized and armed. Next episode, we'll return to this clash between the wolves of Mzilikatsi and the hunters of Baron Barnes. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me. All through Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, Vashimbilas Vavudi. <laughs>